the Cold War, this battle from, you know, 1945 to 1991-ish, is framed as this ideological battle between communism and democracy, when in fact it's actually a battle between communism and capitalism. But what I think is really important there is that the Western powers do a really good and really um, effective job of combining or connecting capitalism and democracy together. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pakani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. If you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from across the country, click the link we provide in our show notes. My name is Roberta Lexier, and I am your host today, co-host. I don't know. It's the book club, so I'm running the show, um, and I am... I am joined today by my bestie and the usual co-host of this show, uh, Scott Schmidt, and our other co-host and good friend, Jeremy Appel, who are in the same room. So hi, guys. We'll just throw it over you together. How are you doing over there? Good. Hi. Hi. Yeah, good to be here in uh, in the Forgotten Corner. Um, for... in, the, in the corner of the basement of the Forgotten Corner <laughs> studios. Yeah, that's right. We're at Forgotten Corner Studios here <laughs> in uh, Medicine Hat, Alberta. Yeah. In the flats. Um, yeah. There's a reason why we don't have like a YouTube channel with videos showing like the surroundings of where we are <laughs> from. Well, I mean, we we should. We should get on YouTube. It's a different audience <laughs> than podcasts. It's yeah that's a like, whole other uh, conversation uh, you guys <laughs> people looking at you like yeah. yeah i'm not doing those shows anymore um we also <laughs> have our <laughs> yeah i'm out at that point we also have our wonderful behind the scenes producer mo cranker um who's a little grumpy this morning which is wonderful um but it's all good to see his smile and do you want to say hi mo and then leave us behind <laughs> hi roberta how are you doing today oh i'm fine thanks for asking <laughs> i hate talking about it so all good Awesome. Well, we are back for. 
I hate talking about it. Why? Nobody wants to hear about how I'm doing. It's fine. Um, so we are back to do uh, part three of our book club. I guess this is the fourth episode, but our third part of the book. Um, so just as a reminder, we're doing a book club, a monthly book club, looking right now at Tyler Shipley's Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination. And just to do a quick recap before we get into a conversation about part three, um, I'm just going to quickly recap for people who haven't been reading the book with us um, or haven't listened to the previous episodes, just to give you a sense of what came before part three. Um, in the beginning of this book, uh, Shipley lays out sort of his larger thesis, I guess, if we're going to be academic about it, um, and really argues that Canada was founded as a capitalist settler colonial nation, um, and that we can see that through, um, you know, the way Europeans settled this land um, and treated Indigenous people. Um, and he argues that that then is how Canada um, goes out into the world is with that kind of uh, basis, the settler colonial capitalist mentality. And so in part two, we looked at um, World War One and World War Two in particular, um, and how, you know, these aren't exactly the, the fights that we've been told they are for freedom and democracy and, um, you know, to stop speaking German or some garbage like that, um, but rather that this was really, these were fights over colonial power between colonial powers and between capitalist powers for control of the, the capitalist colonial system. Does that kind of catch us up? Do you guys think anything I've missed? I mean, you could have just said like, okay, everything Canada's ever been involved in since its inception, it was fucking doing some nasty shit. And that would be good enough. But yeah, like it, in, the uh, in the name of capitalism, we've done some horrifying shit all over the fucking world and uh like pick a place we, we yeah we, we we were there and yeah we did some shady shit but yes yeah you absolutely. covered it also well I mean, that's what's going to be this next part, right, is basically like Canada's really shitty everywhere. Um, you know, like I found in the first two parts, the the first part about the the set settlement of indigenous territories, I found, um, you know, just such a good way to rethink our basis of Canada. Um, but the World War One and World War Two um, uh, parts of this book or chapters in the book really start to to frame our our place in the world in a very different way. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's really, I hope opening people's eyes to, to some of the, the garbage crap that's involved in this country. Any other thoughts about the early parts before we talk about part three? Uh, I mean, in, I mean, you weren't here last time. So do you have any like you quick thoughts that you have for like part two, but I mean, well, I mean, you know, the Second World War stuff was uh, very, I mean, because this book, um, you know, I was telling Scott yesterday, it's just like 500 plus pages of myth busting, just myth after myth, just demolished. And uh, the Second World War one uh, part was particularly interesting because uh, there's so much mythology, like, like everyone knows the First World War was just this imperialist like scramble for territory that served no purpose, right? Like that's that. that, that it wasn't, yeah, there wasn't that, some that, evil that, thing to a that, defeat. Yeah, that's pretty common understanding now, but Second World War because, um, you know, of the, the the horrors of the Holocaust and the, the Japanese uh, atrocities in China and Korea and uh, 
um, you know, Italy, fascist Italy, um, you know, the, we, we look at it in these like black and white, good versus evil terms. And, and there's truth to that, um, except for the good part, right? But uh, there was well, evil shit Shipley... that was happening and some of that evil shit needed to be dealt with. But we were also committing some evil shit. But yeah, I mean the 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 extent uh, to which uh, William Lyne Mackenzie King was a Nazi sympathizer was new to me. I, I mean, I knew like the the whole myth of appeasement. I think that part was crucial. Um, that it wasn't just that these people were like, okay, yeah, yeah Hitler is bad, but if we escalate then things could get worse it's it, it was actually like no hitler's great like he's he's making germany great again you know um after the <laughs> you know after we 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 did give germany a raw deal after the first world war but um the, so, so that sort of ideological affinity that 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 was mutual right that hitler also based what he's doing on what can do to indigenous peoples um is a very uh important piece i think of uh the book's narrative well and i think shipley actually says somewhere in there i wrote down the quote but i'd have to flip back through my notes uh to last month but i he says something about how like we basically backed into the right war like we did the right thing but for the wrong reasons like we weren't fighting hitler because he was killing a bunch of jews and communists and other people um we fought hitler because he was getting too assertive as a capitalist power and starting to challenge our our authority so you know i think it's it's really that that myth busting i, th I think is a great great way to frame this so then we get to the post-war period, which for me is the most interesting in some ways, because this is my area of expertise as a historian. It's the, the reason I chose to study post-World War II Canada was because for me, this was the period that really shaped who we are as a nation in a lot of ways. Um, it's when we get kind of the welfare state model. It's when we, um, you know, get a lot of the, the disputes between English and French Canada. It's when we're kind of establishing our position in the world. Um, and so it felt to me like this was kind of a, a good moment to study of, of how did we get to where we are. Um, and I mean, as a Canadian historian who studies this period, this part still blew my mind. I just need to say that. Like I knew a lot of this stuff because I do this work, um, but it still blows my mind how shitty really Canada has been in this period. And so I think we're going to spend the day talking about how shitty Canada has been for, you know, the past few years. So well, I, hope, I, just, I hope we're not going to spend the day doing that. Cause I well, no, no, no. Like the hour we're here. With you. <laughs> you guys can do whatever you want after this, but um, I, so, okay, let's start with a big question. I think that that'll kind of frame some of where we're going here, which is what the heck is the cold war? Like we're talking in this period, the, the, the chunk is titled Peacekeeping in the Cold War. So what are we talking about when we're talking about the Cold War? What actually is it? The Cold War basically, um, you know, you have to look at, at it in the context of uh, the post-Second World War uh, milieu um, when there's all this, um, so, you know, the Axis powers are defeated. You've got Soviet Union. And you've got the United States that uh, were victorious, as well as Britain, which is a declining power. And um, the Soviet Union, of course, was destroyed 
from the war, I mean, not destroyed, but a lot of damage done during the war. The U.S. was relatively unscathed. And um, all these countries are decolonizing um, after the war, all these former colonies, and the U.S. and Soviet Union are sort of uh, uh, battling for influence um, in, in the third world. And they're sort of using it as a, uh, 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 a chessboard, for lack of a better metaphor, um, to sort of make these um, geostrategic plays. But the Soviet Union um, is like ideologically committed to um, decolonization, whereas the United States is committed to opposing it. So what I'm getting from what you're saying, Jeremy, is that the kind of global order that existed before World War II, the kind of colonial system that was in play um, before the Second World War, kind of collapses after World War II. All these former colonial states, or at the time still colonial states, are starting to kind of fight for their independence to get away from this, that, that order's breaking down. And, and we have kind of two powers fighting over how that process is going to go. Is that... Um, so I, I guess my question is, I mean, I, I totally agree. I'm not saying you're wrong in any way, but I'm, I'm curious about sort of what's at the core of this fight. Like, is it is it about supporting decolonization versus supporting a colonial system um, or like what's the actual basis or what's the, the, the rhetorical, I guess, basis of the Cold War? How is it framed by those involved in it? Well, what's the uh, fight on uh, page 202? <laughs> Nice. Um, Mr. Shipley, or is it Dr. Doctor, Shipley? Doctor. Yeah. Dr. Shipley um, writes, unlike the First and Second World Wars, the animosity at the heart of the Cold War reflected a real class antagonism. The Soviet Union supported revolutionary movements around the world made up of peasants, workers, and other marginalized classes in their respective societies. These were inevitably movements that were upsetting the established class structures, typically highly unequal capitalist or in colonial or semi-colonial systems. As such, U.S. interventions around the world tended to be in support of traditional authorities and the capitalist classes that had grown alongside them. I think that that um, um, section really highlights what the, the like key antagonism at the heart of the Cold War was. Definitely. So it really is about this ideological struggle around class and about um, freedom and other issues. Does the United States and or its allies, Canada and others, do they frame it that way? Do they say like, we're going to go out and protect capitalism against communism? Are we going to, um, you know, protect this colonial settler capitalist system is that or settler colonial system is that what they they argue on the world like trying to get people on their side do they say you know this is what we're fighting for settler colonial capitalism no that's only what we're saying <laughs> right so what are what are they saying like so the united states can't be like yeah we're out you know we want this settler colonial capitalist system it's really awesome but it, which is what they're fighting for, but what do they say they're fighting for? Because well, they can't say that, right? Well, you I mean, can't say we're fighting against class powers. Were, they didn't, 
they didn't not say that they were fighting against communism. I mean, like we all like they were, but they certainly didn't frame it as it was on behalf of capitalism, right? It was on behalf of freedom and it's on behalf of that kind of a world. And like it, they, they made it about, you know, they human rights and things like that. They tried to frame the Soviet Union as this like dick, awful dictatorship where, where people are. And so that's, you know, that was kind of, so, and again, like, I like how Shipley uh, doesn't pretend that there weren't massive problems with uh, how the Soviet Union ran its socialist system, but at the heart of the system was like equality, betterment for people and whatnot. And capitalism like can't have that happening around the world because it needs to expand to like, it's all about markets, right? So for them, um, you can't, like you said, you can't, you can't market, you can't tell people that it's all about the market, but you can certainly tell them it's all about the free part, right? Like, even though it's free market is what you're looking for. You tell people you use the free part and let get people thinking like it was just really shifting the good versus evil argument off of Hitler onto Stalin and the Soviet Union and any goddamn country in the world for the next 50 years that was either associated with the Soviet Union perceived to be associated with the Soviet Union showed signs that would eventually become associated with the Soviet Union what needed to be mashed out and we went forward helping uh right-wing dictatorships um sometimes even straight up overthrow fair elections and like we supported military coups and these kinds of things in order to get right-wing fascistic like capitalistic uh governments who would allow us to continue to go down to places like nicaragua and get all the bananas for free or whatever it, it was that we were were doing down there and so um yeah I, it what i found really insane about this part not insane but like uh it's very similar in a lot of ways to reading the shock doctrine by naomi klein because she goes over a lot of the same examples but she's in that book you're really hearing about the the u.s's involvement in those particular um coups and overthrows and placements of certain governments on purpose and these kinds of things and it was a lot of it like as you're reading along you're like oh yeah canada was there oh yeah we did our part in that too oh yeah we helped we we supported we whether it was you know uh acknowledging a new right-wing unlike militarily taken over government immediately acknowledging them as legitimate right up to goddamn helping them get in right and like our companies that were down there that were like well known for um helping and supplying uh like weapons and stuff for coups like it's crazy how uh puppeteering canada was throughout all of that um and we frame it i know i'm saying a lot here but we frame it all as like the u.s even if we were involved with the US on anything, it was kind of like we had no choice. We frame it as like we sort of rode their coattails. And I was really, uh, I don't know what the word is, but um, to learn that <laughs> in a lot of ways, we were doing what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it for our interests. It was our own capitalism that we were uh, 
looking to protect, not helping. For sure. For sure. And occasionally we break with the Americans. And, and I think we'll, t- we'll talk about some of those examples. The reason I wanted to, to start with the kind of Cold War and the framing of it, which I think you both have, have really fleshed out really well, is that I think it's, it's important for, for how events move going forward that, you know, it's framed the Cold War, this battle from, you know, 1945 to 1991-ish is framed as this ideological battle between communism and democracy, when in fact it's actually a battle between communism and capitalism. But what I think is really important there is that the Western powers do a really good and really um, effective job of combining or connecting capitalism and democracy together. In their rhetoric, they say the only system under which we can have democracy and freedom, human rights, the things you mentioned, Scott, is capitalism. That's what the the whole argument is, is it's the only system that allows us to have freedom and democracy. And the Soviet system, communism, socialism, that's anti-democratic. That's how it's framed rhetorically. And I think, you know, a lot of us probably believe that rhetoric for a long time, that there was, you know, this dictatorship in the Soviet Union and that it was particularly um, authoritarian and all of the, the kind of rhetoric. But I think that framing of democracy and capitalism is interconnected, plays out really importantly until the present, I think, where we're still seeing that, that the argument is the only way democracy works is under capitalism, when in fact, I might argue, I could argue that democracy never works under capitalism because it's built on inequality and exploitation intentionally. And so how do you have freedom, democracy, human rights, and all of those things in a system that's grounded in the exploitation of marginalized people? Are there like any like real examples of commun like just I don't want to call this devil's advocate or whatever, but are there any real examples of where communism and democracy have coexisted together? Because in a lot of ways, you're right. Like we definitely say like uh capitalism is democracy and communism is not, but there are a lot of like from Cuba to the USSR, there were single party state communist governments where it's easy to frame that as a dictatorship when Stalin is in power for as long as he was. Right. And like that, like these, it's not like they're, it's not like these guys were winning elections to be put there, right. By chosen by the people. So, um, well, but, but in communist countries, there is democracy within the one party, right? Like, like a one party state, I mean, yeah, based on our like Western capitalist conceptions of democracy that are sort of like ingrained in our consciousness. So democracy is what we experience as settlers in Canada. Um, No, I mean, no communist country is democratic, but there are, I mean, democratic um, institutions there. They're just not in the same way that ours are and that and that's not to say that you know com, again that you know communist country communism as it's been practiced is this ideal form of like human organization but um you know i think we're told you know we're you know we're we're taught that people in communist countries like hate their lives and they're just scared to uh say so because uh you know they're gonna be arrested or shot and uh, you know 
people um are happy like i mean if you look at you know comparisons to uh in i think i'm jumping ahead a bit but uh um you know people in eastern europe and russia uh after the fall of the soviet union and um how they felt during the soviet union um I, they're a lot happier uh, under communism because although they didn't have a lot of the, you know, civil liberties that we take for granted, uh, they at least had uh, a, a, a sort of uh, basic means uh, looked after and weren't subject yeah. to the whims of the market. I mean, I'm not well, suggesting. So I, I, what I, what I, I just want to say, I think, I think it depends on our definition of democracy because it, we say we're democratic because we have free and fair elections every th four to five years. That's our definition of democracy in, in Western nations. And I mean, I think what I would do is make an argument that democracy is actually quite different and that actually isn't really democracy. Um, what I think you see in, in a lot of Soviet countries um, or Soviet communist countries um, is that the democracy works differently. It works through workers organizations where people actually have control over their working environments in ways that we don't. Um, it works in the sense of people have access to the, the basic necessities of life and so um, can can you know, be free to, to go after the other things in life. Um, you know, I think Shipley does spend a lot of time, you know, making sure that we don't um, hold up the Soviet Union as this ideal model, um, because it did turn really ugly in lots of ways. You know, millions of people were killed um, under the Soviet regime. Um, but a lot of that is because of bureaucracy. Um, and a lot of it is because of planning and the, the kind of poor systems of planning that were in place. Um, it's not necessarily about democracy, but the way we've been taught democracy is different. Um, I mean, if you go to Cuba, for instance, Cuba is a fascinating place that gets no credit, I think, in terms of surviving, for one thing, in the face of massive capitalist opposition 60 miles away. Um, but also, I mean, if you actually spend time looking at what happens in Cuba, it's a ridiculously democratic system in lots of ways just not in the way we think, you know, they don't go and have an election every four years, but they control their lives on a daily basis in ways we can't even imagine um, within the workforce, within the family, within other areas. And so, I mean, for me, it's, it's not trying to idealize the communist systems we've seen, but also to understand that we've only been taught one way of understanding democracy that may actually not be particularly democratic at all. I mean, I think if we had this conversation about how, you know, we have the freedom to choose 75 different pasta sauces, but we don't have the freedom to choose whether to not own a car or to, you know, follow our passions. So it's, it depends how you define freedom, democracy, human rights. Pasta sauce is pretty fucking good though. I mean, you want to, switch it up from time to time but no i'm just kidding no i yeah i just I, i'm not uh i'm not suggesting that the idealisms behind socialism or whatever is something i'm questioning here that's not what i'm questioning I, i'm just i'm just asking like because the confusion is always that con like they frame communism as a dictatorship in every way right and so i'm just trying to find a way to sort of reach the listener in a way that it's like 
how could we bring in the aspects of what they were trying to do as far as like I mean, really, like we've, we've talked about many times on this show, like socialism is a reaction to capitalists inequality, right? Like we're, it's, hey, how do we deal with the fact that there is absolutely natural, inevitable inequality, growing inequality when it comes to capitalism, and it can't be defeated, it can only be slowed. So this is a reaction to that. Is there a way that we can incorporate that into our lives that doesn't flip this into a single party state where people are like well we're not fucking cool with that because they don't yeah i mean i i also think so much of this is the the propaganda and the rhetoric that that we're surrounded by all the time because um you know i think if you look at venezuela as a good example right the canadian media will be like oh my god venezuela is so horrifying like there's no democracy there the freely elected president who i don't know if you just saw but there was a hilarious tweet of um his like pre fake presidential seal fell off the wall behind him at a press conference last week because he's not actually the fucking president but canada no, but there's just an election in venezuela uh, for parliament that was entirely free and fair, um, that observers noted as such, the opposition was allowed to run. They ran more candidates than the yes. party. And but the Canadian lost. media still freaks out and says yeah. like, oh my God, no way, this can't be possible. Yeah, Same yeah, no. Uh, Melanie Jolie, our foreign minister, uh, issued a statement as if that didn't occur. Exactly. It, it, that was like, it could have been written uh, two years ago. And Exactly. Right. My point is that, that, you know, these free and fair elections happen in a, a quote, socialist country like Venezuela that's been moving that direction for a while um, and they happen and then the western media who does not like that system in Venezuela because we're not profiting as much off of Venezuela as we once were freaks out and says those were not free and fair elections this is a corrupt system it's being destroyed by these um, you know self-interested whatever. That's how it's framed here. And so when we think about Venezuela, we think, oh, there it's a socialist state that's being run by one party. It's, you know, one man, it's like really controlled, but that's all propaganda. It's not actually the reality. I think a really good example of that um, is what's happening in Bolivia in particular, where there's been kind of a massive generational indigenous movement that's basically taken power there twice um, and managed to actually build a, a very popular, a very um, effective system of governance that's managing to, to really, um, you know, push back against the, the challengers um, that we have. I mean, you mentioned areas like Nicaragua, and we'll talk about it a bit more in detail, but I mean, they had a very popular based government right never the saying that country's name again by the way nicaragua <laughs> i can't do that <laughs> sorry no, I, I was gonna comment on that too but uh, like oh, the, yeah. that's like like the I, officially because I, was, I was being polite um but no yeah that's a hell of a pronunciation that's um, oh, thanks yeah, yeah no, that's so really good that's, I'm, I'm not oh do you speak yeah. spanish yes yeah, i does. do yeah <laughs> not as fluently because i've been out of practice for a while but i spend a lot of time in central america and the thing is in nicaragua the sandinistas had an incredible base of power they had popular support they you know people support these these groups um the western media 
frames them as a dictatorship, a one-party state, uh, you know, a terrorist, right? Um, rather than the actual terrorists who are the Contras, you know? And so there's, you know, this, this problem that we have in the Western world of, of looking at socialist and communist systems fairly and objectively. I think it's really hard because we are so imbued with this sense of, of anti-democratic um, dictatorships that really aren't the reality around the world in most places, but we see them that way because we're told to. Well, one I mean, thing that Stalin I... is a problem. And so, you know, we can deal with those issues, but many socialist states are not Stalin, you know? Well, one thing Same I find that again. like, <laughs> one, one thing I find that's pretty like telling about the whole thing is like, I mean, obviously there were ways in which we made it look like the, or at least that the USSR was obviously doing its own expect expanded to have its territory or whatever, but every single time any kind of socialism or communism pops up around the world capitalism goes in to crush it that is like we have all these examples what are there any like there's no it's not like there's books going the other way where it's like this country tried to be capitalist and like the uh the Ch chinese communist power flew into africa and crushed that and that's why you see uh south africa is all uh east asian people right like why do you think there's white people all over the fucking world um in these places where you're like hey why did everybody turn white all of a sudden <laughs> like how did we get there yeah we went there and conquered it and usually often it was in times when it, it, not only did we conquer it but anytime the people that we conquer try to like be like uh we'd like to kind of maybe have our shit back um though all the allies of capitalism come together to be like well how can we help you uh get rid of this revolution bullshit and put back in that uh that good old capitalist uh dictator i mean the dictators are their are the best for capitalism right because then we don't gotta fucking worry about reconvincing the guy every four years right we don't gotta like if we get a guy in that does everything has Western, uh, uh, whatever the word is that I'm looking for. Values. But yeah, like whoever's like, whoever's, uh, you know, favorable to the West, put them in. Christ, if they're there for 35 years, beauty. So dictatorships are the, like, we talk about in capitalism and democracy, like dictatorships are the worst. They're our, they're our best friend. We love them. Well, this is, I think, part of the problem with evaluating socialism and communism and even talking about it in our capitalist dominated world is that we haven't seen examples of where it can actually just be left alone to flourish and build the way it, it should that, you know, capitalists, and that's what we're going to talk about as we go forward with this, this section is that, you know, capitalists do whatever necessary to protect and promote their system. Um, and that means sending the full weight of like global powers into these places to prevent popular movements from emerging. And so, you know, that's why I say Cuba deserves so much credit in so many ways for surviving through that 60 miles from its biggest, biggest competitor. But the reality is, is that every time a small group or a group of people start challenging the capitalist powers, you know, capitalism is going to come in and push back. And, and we see examples of that. So during this, oh, sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say, it reminds me of a great book I read this year uh, called The Jakarta Method by uh, Vincent Bevins. I I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but it may have been the other podcast. Um, But I highly recommend people read it if you like uh, Candid in the World. Um, That just goes through all these third world, uh, not even, right? A lot of these... uh, third world um, governments that were overthrown weren't explicitly communist or at least didn't start as communists like Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam and in and, and Cuba. I mean, we've been talking about, I mean, Fidel Castro wasn't a communist until he had to be one because um, the Soviet Union were like, hey, do you want our support uh, against the Yankees? And he was like, hell yeah. And then he became a Marxist. But um, all all these uh, third world nationalist movements were just viewed through the prism of combating communism and, uh, you know, Jakarta being in Indonesia uh, with uh, Sukarno, um, who was also nationalist leader there, worked with the Communist Party of Indonesia, but wasn't himself a communist. And uh, for the US, that was no good, that they wanted someone who would be virulently opposed to communism uh so they overthrew him and uh you know i think i'm jumping ahead a bit in this portion of uh the of canada in the world but um I, he's one of the great mass mur- suharto was one of the great mass murderers of the 20th century and it was all in the name of uh fighting communism and uh i mean he he killed more people, at least, or a greater percentage of his uh, country's population, which is a very big country, um, than most communist uh, leaders did. Um, and I, I, you know, I was very much reminded of that when I got to the section on Indonesia in Canada's role in uh, supporting Suharto. This is why I think we have to be critical of this this conception of capitalism and democracy being connected together that um, like inherently connected together that one requires the other and they have to exist together because I think, you know, Indonesia, Suharto, other examples are really good examples of how in fact, capitalism would benefit from a non-democratic system and that a lot of these efforts to overthrow supposed dictatorships were actually about, um, you know, ending popularly supported democratic models. Um, And and really that's, I think, what Shipley is arguing in, in this section. So during this period, we've talked a lot about the U.S. as being kind of the the lead, um, I don't know, group in this this Cold War. It's the Soviet Union versus the United States. So Canada is generally portrayed during this period as a middle power. We're kind of in the middle. We're not like superpowers. We're not like little teeny, teeny groups. We're the middle We're the can't everyone just get along country. Right. We're the the peacekeepers. Can't we all just get along? Let's negotiate settlements. This is how we're framed. Um, This is how it comes across on Heritage Minutes now that that Shipley spends a lot of time talking about. Um, I looked it up. um, Oh, sorry. Um, I I just wanted to say I looked it up as of May of 2020. Um, Canada currently has 35 uh, people deployed on peacekeeping operations around the world. 35 total. That's how many people we have deployed on peacekeeping missions. And that's up from the three it was like 
two years ago. So we're portrayed as this middle power in this peacekeeping um, organization. You know, this is what we do. Can everybody get along? Is that who we are? Yeah. When I hear people talk about uh, Canada as a peacekeeping nation and how we should just go back to that, I want to cut my ears off. Um, I thought it was interesting that like we were able to sort of uh, hijack a couple of incidents where we could be like, look how uh, peacekeepy we were, right? Like, look how we negotiated this thing or whatever. But then like you'd see examples afterwards where those the countries that were involved in that were like, okay, don't invite Canada to the one because they're fucking, they're not really on our, they're not really here doing their 100% of the time uh, here for, you know, like when it was a, like a, in South Africa, right? Like we were always on the side of like white South Africa, right? Until it was kind of like we had this one opportunity to be like, well, we kind of had no choice now. We have to be against it. So we are. And then we're like, look at us. We help Ryan bring Mulroney it down. Right. Is an anti-racist icon. <laughs> right. He, and so he did the right thing when no one else would. He's so courageous. And so that's just one of the many examples of those of that exact thing where where we do that thing. And we we swoop in and try to look cool and then make it blow it up into heritage minutes where we did this great thing and everybody was like Canada wow who invited them they're so great and that's just uh not exactly how it went and we always side with the capitalistic uh side and the non-capitalistic side goes away going well fuck it's not very fair is it and and the rest of the world is on to that I mean you know Trudeau made such a huge show of uh trying to get that security council seat and the rest of the world was like, no, no, no. Why? Why? The U.S. already has a seat on the Security Council. It, yeah, exactly. You're just another American vote. Like you're basically just another like you're just going to be come here and be a, not American vote, everything, but it will never be a fair vote. It will always be. And so, yeah, it's. This is what I love belong. about Canada and our are kind of myth-making that we pretend we don't do. Like we, we pretend that we have no national identity and that there's, there's no sort of national myth-making like elsewhere. But our myth-making is, is so interesting because we, we have this thing where we want to pretend like we don't have any power, right? Like we, we want to pretend like, like we are just, you know, the nice guys trying to, trying to help out. Like we just want to make everybody happy and make sure everything's good. And, and we don't have a, a particular interest in any of this. Like this is just about the betterment of the world. Like we have to put forward this, this particular image of that. Um, and yet in reality, I think what Shipley does really well is shows that not once is Canada actually neutral in any of these, these fights that are happening. Like we, we like to pretend that we are, but in reality, we're not. And as you said, Jeremy, like the rest of the world is totally on to us. Like, um, you know, the example, Scott, you were kind of alluding to of, of the Suez Canal and how, you know, Canada goes in, Lester Pearson decides like, I'm going to create this, this peacekeeping force to, to help out this, this situation. And he wins a freaking Nobel Peace Prize for it. Um, and 
you know, the Egyptians were like, uh, seriously, we know you're on the side of the French and the British. Can you please just get the hell out of here? Like, we don't actually want Canada involved. And I find that just so fascinating because when I was younger, you know, the thing was always, you know, sew a Canadian patch to your backpack when you're traveling because people love Canadians, right? Like we're the nice people, we're the non-Americans, we're the neutral ones. But the reality is like everybody else around the world already knew that we were the assholes. We just like pretended we weren't and somehow we were got the only away ones with that it. didn't know. Yeah, we were the only ones because even the Americans Shipley shows sometimes are like, who the hell are these assholes in Canada? Like we're even but, going too far for them sometimes. Yeah, I and that uh, I think brings us to a part of the book that I found very interesting that I had no idea about. And that was Canada's role in uh, keeping Samosa in power in Nicaragua. Did I pronounce that right? You did better than me. You could do it well because you have Hebrew because you have to roll the R's and you need like right. the Nicaragua. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't do that. I'm so yeah, fucking yeah. white. But uh, <laughs> I, I had no idea about that because I mean, you know, it's interesting. And when we have the author on, I'd like to ask him about this because on the one hand, Canada more often than not plays the role of um, serving U.S. empire, but this book um, has a few instances where actually Canada did chart its own independent foreign policy that was actually uh, uh, more, uh, I mean, I want to say more imperialistic than the U.S. foreign policy, but it was, um, um, it was equally uh, imperialistic and not simply, uh, he mentions Linda McQuaig's book, uh, Holding Bully's Coat, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I read it a while ago. I quite liked it, but, um, you know, uh, he criticizes it as being an oversimplification as Canada just being the servant of U.S. empire, although that often is the case. Um, and yeah, I had no idea that the U.S. Uh, were like, yeah, it's time for Samosa to go get some, some uh, you know, general in there who's more reliable. And Canada was like, no, we, we, we need this guy to facilitate our like mining operations there. And, and Canada won out. Um, there's, of course, he mentioned, uh, I believe in the previous um, part of the book, but maybe it may have been two parts ago about... Um, uh Canada's efforts to sort of uh, uh colonize Latin America that didn't succeed but this was the, with with samosa this was an instance where Canada actually succeeded in pushing the US's hand and and that to me was wild i i had no idea that that Canada um because, I, you know, I, I think there is this tendency, um, and, and I actually wrote about this this week in, in, in my newsletter, you should all subscribe to if you haven't yet, um, that Canada has this like overinflated ego of its influence on the world stage. But I mean, sometimes, sometimes uh, we do. And I was wondering, what, what Roberta, what, as our resident expert, um, what you make of that? Well, I do think it's it's a really important way to to kind of rethink Canada's foreign policy that that 
And again, I think it's this this duplicitous nature that the Canadian state is is involved in or this this duplicitous process of trying to pretend one thing and be another. Um, So, you know, rhetorically. Uh, we pretend to be this neutral arbiter of justice and freedom around the world. Um, but in reality, all of that is hiding, um, you know, some real shady shit that's going on in the background, you know, and it's, it's so much connected to our mining corporations that um, are, are intensely horrifying. I mean, when I first started going uh, to Central America to do field schools, um, you know, the people there weren't particularly friendly to us in our, our attempts to, to bring students down because Canadian mining corporations have been the ones to destroy their, their environment, their workforce, all of those things. I mean, Shipley talks about some of the mines in Brazil, in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, in some of the other places where, um, it, also in, in Africa, I mean, he talks about some of the, the mining um, operations there where, I mean, it's quite literally slave labor. People are being paid nothing. Um, you know, local environments are being destroyed. There's no regulations. And I mean, this is something that, that we don't talk about with Canada, but that around the world, people know. I mean, um, Shipley talks a lot about Falcon Bridge, for instance, Inco, um, Alcan. Um, you know, these are big companies that around the world are known for, for their horrible um you know, records on on labor rights, environmental rights, all of these things. And so, um, you know, it's, I think, convenient to hide behind the Americans and to be able to say, you know, look at these evil Americans um, killing Vietnamese citizens or, or whoever. Um, but we're not doing that, except our companies are doing that. And when necessary, we go in to support them doing it. I think that's why, you know, it's counterintuitive when you think of it as Canadian state power, because, of course, compared with the US, I mean, we're, uh, you know, a ragtag band of uh, misfits. But um, when you look at in terms of the interests of Canadian corporations like Falcon Bridge, um, it um, makes a lot more sense as to how in, in the case of Nicaragua, we were able to uh, have this outsized influence. It wasn't the Canadian state, it was the uh, Canadian um, um, Canadian capital um, that was backed up by the state, but um, it, you know, it was Falconbridge that, that, that took this uh, lead role. Well, we also do this thing where we we don't have like the biggest military, right? Like the US has this massive military industrial complex. Ours isn't massive, although it is it is large comparatively, um, but we don't have a massive military complex. But if you start going through Shipley's book or looking at current numbers, the amount of arms deals that we do with um, particular countries is outrageous. Like we are selling billions and billions of dollars of military equipment and supplies to all sorts of people throughout the period that Shipley's talking about and still today. And I, I you know, I kept thinking about as, as he's talking about um, funding of, of various militias or various groups um, in Afghanistan and South Africa and um, Central Africa and other places around the world, it, you know, it 
made me really think about the Saudi Saudi Arabia situation currently, where we're you know funneling billions of dollars of of military equipment into Saudi Arabia to help basically um, with their attempts to destroy Yemen and and take control of the area. Um, and it seems to me that it's you know it really reinforces Shipley's arguments about kind of our 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 interests in the world and how we we facilitate those in very sneaky and duplicitous ways. I mean, Saudi Arabia is our our ally in the region. And so to expand their power, we will support them. We've done the same with Israel. He talks a lot about Israel in that section I found fascinating. Um, but the same thing, like they were seen as kind of the bulwark of this colo settler colonial capitalism in the region. And we will do everything in our power to support them. Um, and so I find, you know, our, our rhetoric around our, our small stature, our small ability is really actually, um, you know, countered by the facts of the matter, which is that we're just funding, like we're just supplying everybody with all of the stuff that they need to fight these wars. Yeah, it's funny how we're always um, talking about, like, you always hear the argument about like, uh, too much foreign aid. We're too much foreign aid where we're helping people where we should only help ourselves when really like the bulk of our foreign aid over the years has been like military grade weaponry to help like these regimes continue or take over or take back over or whatever right like this is much of our foreign aid has just been aiding the uh, sort of capitalistic um goal of the day and uh yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's nuts. Now, we should probably like get to either like apartheid or fall of the USSR or both or whatever, because we're at about an hour here. I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to, because Scott and I were sort of having this argument before, how is apartheid pronounced? Is it how Scott's pronouncing it or is it how I am? Or is it neither? Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's Afrikaans. So we'd have to ask an, uh, somebody who speaks Afrikaans. I say apartheid. Often I'll say apartheid. Um, but I, I don't know. But it's not Let's apartheid. find somebody who speaks Afrikaans. It's not. Well, our, it, it could it could be. It could be. I have just as much of a chance of being right as you do. That's what the horse historian just fucking said. She just says it say, her own way, the same way I'm okay, doing. Okay. I just, we all just picked away. Potato, potato. Yeah, we're all white people attempting to pronounce a, a word that's not. Uh, I like can, English. I can message my Jewish South African friend. There you go. There's a lot of Jewish South Africans who moved to to Canada after the yeah, fall of apartheid. Actually, interestingly it, enough. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. We'll um, never okay, know. so I think you know. I, I, it's funny because I, I wrote down all of these examples that that Shipley talks about of where Canada, um, you know, does really sketchy things, and and I'm not, we're not going to talk about them because there's a million of them. But just before we we jump into the specifics of the end of this part, I just want to list them be, so that you might have a sense of how much there is that Canada's doing. So we're doing some shady shit in Australia, Suez, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Chile, Argentina. Um, he talks about NATO and how Canada actually like legit we were desires like the, NATO. Weren't we the like, yeah, we were like the architect. Like it was like, we're like our the ones begging idea. for NATO because we wanted something that brought the Americans and the Brits together that could kind of protect our interests. 
Um, Cuba, it, uh, he talks a lot about our, our role as the spies in Cuba and really helping the Americans there. Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia. Um, later, he talks again about Nicaragua and the Contras and Sandinistas. He talks about South Africa again. Um, you know, it's my point is that all around the world, Canada's doing this shit. And basically, I think we, we made the point earlier that that it's always on the side of capitalism. So whatever's going to benefit the capitalist system, whether that means supporting a dictator somewhere or supporting a popular elected leader or a coup or whatever it's going to take, that's what we do to support um, the capitalist system. Pick an underdeveloped nation, and that's a place that we are uh, have our foot on their throat, making sure they stay underdeveloped so that we can exploit it for resources and labor and all of those things. And that's not just Canada. That's just the machine, the G7, G20 machine of capitalism, uh, keeping its foot on the rest of the world. But anyways, uh, I digress. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's such an important thing that, you know, all these attempts to, to challenge capitalism are met with mass resistance from from many different areas nato um the g7 um you know we haven't even talked about the imf and the world bank and their use of structural adjustment programs to force developing nations into a capitalist model um you know all of these these processes are used um you know shipley quick, talks about how quick pause oh, so that she's talking about the international oh, monetary <laughs> fund and um the world it is, bank is, right so this is a lot of the times when um like for south africa is a good example where even uh like mandela was like sort of uh, had no choice but to do some straight up capitalistic things once they took over because uh it, the imf makes sure of it right like the imf will give lots of money to capitalistic countries that want to do shit and they basically deprive people they um didn't for they don't forgive former debts of like dictators that get overthrown these kinds of things they the the imf and world bank has worked for since their inception the goal has been to basically keep these Cl the classes of these countries uh exactly as is go ahead they well, the funny thing go ahead jeremy sorry oh, i was just gonna say they, they the the imf you know by design fosters dependency correct um and yeah the the uh uh you mentioned the shock doctrine earlier in the commonalities with this book but uh in the chapter on the shock doctrine on uh post-apartheid south africa uh, you know, I, I read that book like a decade ago, but that sticks with you. That chapter in particular really sticks with you because there was so much promise there uh, going into uh, this post-apartheid era and then the, uh, you know, international capital uh, um, ma made sure to uh, put the brakes on on the, the, the more radical parts of the ANC uh, charter. That's a so good this point. is a good... I was going to say, oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. I was just going to no, transition I was just gonna say it was a good why point we supported because, it. Yeah. It was a good point because um, that's one of the things that stuck with me out of the shock dropper too. And I've read it a couple of times now, thankfully, once because of you, um, get, uh, allowing me to read it a second time, which was great. But it is one of the things that should stick with you out of that book is that uh, capitalism doesn't just have military power and, and organization on its hands. It has... The, the global economic uh, sort of like you think of a, like in the Game of Thrones, they had that iron bank like we control that shit. We're in charge of it. So we decide who's the winners and the losers. So it's not even uh, capitalism is a, is a blank sheet of, of competition. 
we actually control who gets to win and lose with these institutions. And that's very important. Anyways, go ahead, Roberta. Well, and, I mean, I think I think Shipley talks uh, a lot about how, you know, this this settler colonial capitalism can work. I mean, it, it would it can work violently and has worked incredibly violently. It can also work very effectively through coercion and really just offering no opportunities for alternatives. Um, you know, the people of South America, South Africa, Central America, the people around the world who are, um, you know, struggling for freedom and for, for you know, um, you know, justice and, and democracy, those people are are forced into a capitalist model because it's the only one they're given the option of. We have an official pronunciation of Excellent. apartheid. Apartheid. Right? Yeah, because it, it's Dutch. There's a little Dutch inflection there. So yeah. it, it is... Um, Assuming we're reading phonetic I think it's spelling correctly. Apartheid. Apartheid. Apart so H-A-I-D, he's saying is hide there. That's not very good phonetic spelling on your friend's part. I'll tell him. Clean it up, Dan. Okay. Just kidding. We're still on. We're still looking. <laughs> but it's right. probably so, apartheid, okay? I'm wrong. So here's the right. thing is that, you know, the cap capitalist system can be very uh, violent and very assertive, um, and that boils into wars. Um, you know, they will actually, we will go in and destroy uh, popular movements, but it can also work through coercion, through the banks, through financial systems, other well, things. Well, and I would argue that we are more successful more often now with the coercion and the using the banks, because I would suggest that the world is well fucking aware of what will happen to them if they fuck with us, right? Like, it's like, you're going to listen to the coercion because you already know we're going to come in and blow you up. We'll fucking exactly. murder you for sure. So exactly. if you don't want to be murdered, yeah, you should probably just like take the deal we're forcing upon you. And and uh, crazy how like we win those fucking deals. How it works. Time. And look at when it doesn't. I mean, so right now we're going through this process with Central and South America um, where we're seeing a bunch of nations really trying to overthrow or, um, you know, shed that American influence and that control. And, you know, the, the Canadians, the Americans, we all are part of a group trying to stop that from happening. Um, and so it's really difficult to do. Um, and so let's maybe, I want to talk about the, the end of the Soviet Union, because that really does, um, um, does show that there's no options left, right? Like we don't even have the options left, but, but you did want to talk about apartheid. So I do want to just ask, you know, really quickly, why does Canada suddenly decide that apartheid's done? Like we've been supporting apartheid for years. We actually it, are like helping them with residential schools and other things. So why in the 1980s, late 18, 1980s, Brian Mulrooney becomes this savior, you know, how does that happen? Is he just like a really good dude? My understanding was that it was yes. just way to explode, exposed to the world. Uh, politically, we actually like ca Canadians themselves were uh, finally like politically like this can't continue like these. This is some bullshit going on over there. So as long as our own people didn't really notice that we were supporting uh, like an extremely racist government, like apartheid is a built on like you stay over there we stay over here right we get stuff you don't that's how it, that's what it was we were on the side of that 
until our own, until Canadians decided we couldn't be. I think that's how it worked. And so it was kind of like reluctantly we brought Mulrooney gets out in front of it a bit uh, because it's like he could see the writing on the wall and Canadians were like, that's some bullshit. I think that that's actually a really good, like positive thing is that, oh, oh fuck Canada. Look at this. You can affect change. You know, I found that part surprising because I always uh, thought of Brian Mulroney as a man of the utmost uh, <laughs> character and integrity. So it really shattered my image of him. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Brian Mulroney was really my hero growing up. So it was really challenging to, to read that. But I mean, I think I think two things are happening here. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, Canadians are like, are you shitting me that we're OK with this, like ridiculously inequitable and, you know, obviously um, awful system. I mean, Shipley has this line in the book about how Canada and Australia had learned how to do their, their racism in a much more benign way. Um, South Africa was very overt about it. Like apartheid was very clear. And so the writing was on the wall. Popular opinion was, was shifting, but I think Shipley also makes the point, um, and I think this comes through in the other issues he talks about, that we also then were like, okay, we can maybe control this and direct it so that what happens post-apartheid still benefits us as a country. If we get out on the front of this, they're going to listen to us when we say, oh, maybe don't go the socialist route. Well, and this is the part that's most important about it, I think, is that like, we, f- we were able to frame it in this way of, look, we're against this extremely racist, unequal system. So we're going to get rid of that. And look, a black guy is going to run the show. Like, isn't that like, look at how progressive this is. Everything's fine. Now everyone stopped looking, which we did, because that was what was sort of exposed as making us uncomfortable. That's what was making the public uncomfortable. What wasn't part of that is that we again back to the IMF and and uh, our systems that we use we just found a different way to keep the exact same shit it wasn't that we care we didn't care what color the person was that we just cared that it stayed capitalistic that it that it stayed that that all we were able to continue to come in there with our companies and do our thing not nothing was going to get nationalized because Mandela wanted to nationalize some shit and he quickly found out afterward that he couldn't and Mandela ended up being a very underwhelming leader uh not uh, and that that's something that that's not an insult to him that's him having goddamn no choice at all but to do what the what the capitalist country said. So the ones that propped that up were the same ones that came in and said, you can't do this anymore. Like we were always the puppeteer, like the system. And Canada's part in that was actually uh, from beginning to end ginormous because we took Canadians went over to South Africa to teach them how to make apartheid, apartheid, right? Apartheid, Jesus. I already forgot. So they, we taught them. Basically, I was right. We taught them the system that they put in. And then we're like, eventually several, you know, decades later come out and we're like, well, you guys can't do this anymore, but we should have done it more quietly. Like the part we forgot to teach them is how to hide it. Well, because we hide ours. Well, they don't, they didn't hide theirs well. So it had to go. Right. But we didn't want that to be replaced with socialism. And so we had to control that. 
So then around this same time, 1991-ish, um, the Soviet Union collapses. And Shipley, I think, says like it kind of dies with a whimper, not a like any big celebration. It just sort of collapses. Like it just, I remember at the time being like, okay, I guess this is happening. I think um, well, I, I was born the year the Berlin Wall fell. I think 1990, was that when? No, the Berlin Wall came down in 89. Oh. Yeah. The, well, two years later, they... Uh, the Soviet Union disbanded. Right, right. But I was, uh, you know, the year I was born, uh, communist countries were. That was it. Jeremy's hum- born. No more socialism required. Yeah. We don't need it anymore. You, you can thank me later. Wait, a Jewish um, baby was born and yeah. the world was saved? Holy <laughs> oh, wait. fuck. I'm oh, sitting shit. beside <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Uh, I'm going to shift my whole opinion. But see, that's stuff. interesting because the way it's projected back in history, it's like this was a, this moment of like jubilation and people in Eastern Europe were so happy to finally be rid of like their communist oppressor. Oh, yeah oppressors and you know Vaclav Havel came to power and he was just so great and so it's really interesting to me now that you're being like yeah it just you know it just kind of happened and you know as someone who like lived through it um telling me that when I have this image that's just been like beamed into my head of um you know this this uh this very like momentous uh, yeah. and it it wasn't I mean it really just dwindled like it just, it just ended. Sort of faded away yeah um and you know Shipley talks about um Russia in particular and he talks about um the shock therapy um approach that they used post end of the Soviet Union where basically they just threw capitalism at it as fast as they could like everybody buy up whatever you possibly could um and it really became a victory for the rich like rich it people took got less really than rich. a decade for Russia's uh, 50% of its population to be in poverty, less than a decade after uh, capitalism swooped in. That's real. That's how fast that was. That's how fast it was. He talks about public opinion. You know, somebody mentioned earlier about like people hate it, like our image of capital or communism is that people hated it. And, you know, he talks about how in Russia, people were actually really unhappy, like their lives were horrifyingly bad compared to what they had been. They used to have housing and food and all of these things that no longer just were like they were no longer an automatic for them. Absolutely. And now instead they have this rich oligarchy who's kind of controlling everything without getting any of that down. And so Putin actually comes in as this like um, very, in a way, fascist, like a, a patriarchal nationalism, like we're awesome, we can do this and and kind of rebuilds that Russian um, kind of, I don't know, uh, authority or whatever. But but really, I mean, the collapse of communism was horrible for people well, who had to live through didn't it. Didn't the like life expectancy in Ukraine like plummet? Like, I, I mean, obviously not overnight, but very quickly. Well, it's falling in North America now too. So yay for that, um, which is odd, but- I love freedom. None, nonetheless, um, I, I think that like, just as, as we- for t- on the interest of time here, just as a broader sense of like where we are today, like think of where we're 30 years from the fall of the Soviet Union. And what have we seen? We've seen every aspect of capitalism that is detrimental to the world, to the people, to the environment, to anything, you name it. We've seen that go to a, a cat, like uncontrollable, unstoppable, just cruel places. 
where we are like, holy fuck, BC's being swept away in a river, right? And like, this is, this is where we're at. Like we have exacerbated every single problem because capitalism lost its one competition. So the, the cold war, which was this weird decades long thing that existed in a billion different countries, all, you know, go all at the same time. And it was never really like bang, bang, shoot, shoot, talk that way. Yeah. It fizzled away because like, we we were the victors and we were we were like we looked at the fall of the soviet union as this great wonderful thing but objectively speaking i don't give a fuck if you're listening to this and you're like a just like steadfast stalwart capitalist you tell me if anything around the world has improved in the 30 years where where where, the funny thing where are we Yeah. So here's the funny thing is that, um, you know, the end of the Soviet Union basically destroyed any alternative to capitalism. This is why they referred to it as the end of history, like capitalism had won. This was it. It had won victorious. But the reality is, is, you know, a much more difficult thing to live with. So I'll give you an example that I find kind of hilarious. So we were talking about the IMF and how the IMF was like force feeding capitalism around the world um, through various means. The IMF in the last couple of years has come out with a whole bunch of warnings saying, you know, like, economic inequality actually might be a big problem. Like we might want to actually think about how to limit the the, division. Yeah. The man in the hot dog costume, like, Oh, we got to figure out who did this. Exactly. Like um, how did this happen? But somehow we're now at inequality and what the IMF and capitalists are seeing is like, wait a minute, people are rising up against this like um shocker people don't like this and so the imf is like well maybe we should you know rethink our policies to to limit inequality a little bit i'm glad you actually mentioned that because it is funny that like that is a real thing like uh that i've seen a lot of lately is like the goddamn imf is like uh guys this is not going to work out well. Like, actually, we probably should, like, reel this shit in some. And the IMF like, is based. And, like, everything we write, <laughs> right? like, everything Stand I write, like, everything that's good in your life, everything, these are all social interventions that we've put in place to fix problems that capitalism created. Like, everything, and I've said this before, everything in your life that you enjoy, that's social everything in your life that stresses you out that's capitalism 100 percent. and it's like if we have a system where 50 percent of the people in the richest countries in the world are fucked why is this good this is the winning like that's one thing shipley really mentions like if if capitalism was the end of history if capitalism winning in 1991 was the end of history why the fuck isn't the world just full of everyone living their best life? And that's what we that's what this show was born out of, right? This was maybe our first episode was talking about shit like this. Like, how can we imagine a different world? Like, shouldn't we shouldn't lives get easier by the day, right? Like we have the technology and the resources to have very social, recreative, wonderful, uh, fulfilling, creative lives. And we just don't because of this shitbag system that we're in. And all we do is pick a party every four years. And we, we hope to pick a party that just maybe has more, a couple ideas of where to put a Band-Aid on the pipe, right? 
like and we and we we prop them up like they're some sort of fucking like moral high ground descended from the heavens or whatever like drop that shit about your mindset when it comes to the Justin Trudeau's or the Rachel Notley's of the world. Yes, they might be great people. Who fucking cares? That's not the point. We're still, all of us are still exacerbating a system. We are still perpetuating a system that is destined, fucking destined to fail. And the head of that system, the thing we created to make sure it exists is saying the same thing to us now. This isn't a socialist fucking communist idea. Capitalism is saying capitalism is fucked. Think about that. Yeah, I mean, the IMF is saying, like, if we're not careful, people are going to rise up and, and you're going to have to fight them down. They're saying, like, let's watch out for that. And so it's like this warning, you know, they understand capitalism doesn't work Which unless actually, you intervene. Uh, another book I would recommend uh, is The Trudeau Formula by uh, Martin Lukash, where he details that, you know, that is that is the Trudeau formula. It's like, if we don't do like the bare minimum, people are going to take more radical action. Right. So, um, yeah, let's, so uh, bare minimum it is. What's yeah. the absolute bare minimum we can do. It's the same yeah. with, you know, um, action on climate change, you know, it's what's the minimum we can do, but I also How actually we look think- like we're trying. Exactly. But if it, if it boils over too much, like at Wet'suwet'en, then we will intervene and send back in the force that was created the first time around to try and, you know, eliminate that opposition to our capitalist drive. Yeah, but we made like a 90-year-old apologize for telling the truth this week. So fucking go, Canada. Yay. Sorry. That seems oh, like a good place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said nine-year-old. No, no. Like, no, I'm like, <laughs> is David Suzuki 90? I don't know. He's old as fuck, but we old. put that old <laughs> bastard in his place you come in here talking your whole truths and shit yeah that was amazing when uh the alberta ndp was like yeah he's calling for violence we denounce it oh my god it's like you know you know people can read what he said right yeah roberta did you remember the column i wrote uh about how um it doesn't matter whether you make laws to stop protests and blockades of railroads because like you're not dealing with a group of people that are interested in being fucking deterred and they yeah. will do what you're just going to make them more radical and more violent. It's funny how I didn't get nationally accused <laughs> of inciting violence for saying literally the same fucking thing David Suzuki said. I just didn't use the words they'll blow it up. What's yeah. the fucking difference? I, a year ago, I said, like before COVID, I wrote, it's going to get violent. And, but it's a, it's a, it's a way to like, cause David Suzuki, of course, has like, he's the face of the fucking lying left environmentalist bullshit, right? I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, disavow uh, my former podcast co-host, Scott Schmidt. For <laughs> His violence. violence, yeah. Yeah, he has been removed from the Forgotten Corner podcast. Um, He's actually been removed from the Forgotten Corner yeah, period. He, he's now at a CIA black site. He's in- taken care of, don't you fret. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
Fuck. Awesome. Well, I mean, I really appreciate reading this part with you guys. I mean, I think it's 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 hard to do this when you know you've had these myths for so long and and this sense of your country to read like one by one by one by one by one by one all the shitty like, shitty oh, this things too? we've oh, done. Oh, that example. Oh, this. Yeah. No. Oh, in that country too, we were assholes. Oh, we were doing that. We were training militias over here and training military forces over there, and we were doing all this stuff. But I think it's also so important for us to actually know and understand this stuff to be real about who we are as a country and where we should go so we have one more more part left to go um we'll do that in a month um and then we will have the author on to talk about this so we hope you've been enjoying I, our I podcast hate that, uh, like i love that we've announced that and we did announce that earlier but uh like i don't know but like we got this we did get a message from um nicola saying that she would organize a whole rally to get people to spend more money on our podcast if we get Tyler Shipley on the show. And now we've already just let it out of the bag that that was already happening. Okay, so Tyler Shipley is not coming unless you give us a whole bunch of money. That's right. So actually, what what we really meant was is Shipley said he'd come if. If. If you yeah. donate, we're, we're actually not going to let Tyler Shipley leave until <laughs> right. you give us that's right a million dollars. It's like that. It's like that thing where they arrest all the teachers and put them in jail for the day or whatever, and you got to bail them out, uh, give money to the food bank or some shit. Yeah, you got to give money. Is that to the a thing? Well, yeah, it's I don't know. It's called bail. Like they've I've been asked like every year because you're in media, right? They come around and they're like, "Was anybody want to volunteer to be locked up for the day?" No. no thanks i sure fucking don't I, I do this it. is not for fun i, do, I got nothing better to do. yeah I, i'm exposing myself but i don't do a lot of charity I, I, after the cargo <laughs> strike i'm for i'm for people i'm trying to fight the battle a different way you got like charity is a sign of uh, a shitty system anyway we can talk about that another day we should get out of uh, here though can i just plug my cargo stuff fuck why don't we just like make this all about jeremy yes of course you can uh yeah i am covering the cargill strike for uh rankandfile.ca uh my second story uh just came out today when we're recording so, five days ago yeah five days ago <laughs> uh you should read it if you haven't though by the time this comes out i'll have another story coming out in a few days and then if the strike happens and it almost certainly will there because, are a, it's a lockout order right now we yeah exactly yeah. well but but also the union has voted to go on strike so well, it's a clearly they'll pick it even if they're locked out but yeah we should... but anyway but what it means yeah is that there's going to be there's going to be picketing let's put it that way and so uh rank and file is sending me to the picket line to cover it for a week and uh write a story each day of what's going on picket line um if you want to support rank and file.ca so they can pay me uh you can do so uh at their website and uh yeah look forward to uh hitting the picket line yeah that's awesome um but, but give us money first because rank and final rank and file is already paying jeremy but i want well, i want i want forgotten corner to pay scott that's what i want i'm just kidding well it's what, we're, we're a long way away from what you gotta do is you gotta get two tabs open yeah on your computer yeah five bucks each no big deal rank file.ca yeah forgotten corner and if you're feeling very generous um appell orchard.substack oh my god uh, you know We'll put you, we'll put all the ways you can fucking support Jeremy in our show notes today because there are several and you should definitely do that. Yeah, there are about five, four or five. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, uh, I don't know if you heard, but Alberta's on a fucking roll. So you guys are obviously all sitting on some disposable income. Some of your parents just got some pretty cheap childcare. So fork us some over some cash is what we're saying here, I think, right? Like that's, yeah. yeah. Like what? You've got you some sweat. <laughs> oh, we will. Um, we we do have some some fresh swag Um we have some out. cool stuff coming yeah for our patrons. so yeah. um now now's a as better time than any probably the best time it's holiday season people are feeling generous <laughs> give um, us some shit you know you don't want to be a scrooge that's so, the most we've ever plugged ourselves for getting cash hey like we're yeah. usually just like yeah if you wanna you know well, but seriously bad, if you wanna you know. oh i know it, you only like listen if we deserve it we do if we don't we don't that's cool you're always going to be able to listen to this show yeah. so this is we're we, here we to... don't do paywalls <laughs> yes, we're not right. we're not big shiny takes right. we don't we don't think that some of our content i don't i don't want my i don't want to i don't want to be in danger of bumping my big ass medicine at news salary into a new bracket with uh extra income from the forgotten corner so anyways all right are we ready to go roberta do you have any last words my co uh, the teacher of the day like is can you give us a final lesson of the day and we'll uh grade us <laughs> i don't want to hear it <laughs> grade you no 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 no. since half of you didn't do the readings today we're not grading anybody scott wins the gold star um no, I just, just, I mean, just to be clear we all did the readings. It's just some of us did more of them than others. <laughs> some yeah. of you didn't finish the readings. Some, some <laughs> of us finished the assignment. That, but that is an important distinction, right? Yeah. Though it would be impressive if I hadn't done any of the readings. I just talked about the book. You went to a different I'm not sure type that's of impressive. school than I did. Because yeah. <laughs> I think if you handed, when I went to school, if you handed in 75% of assignment, you just got zero. <laughs> They're like, you didn't fucking finish. I can't. I, I did nothing. go to a different type of school. <laughs> right? than that is true. Yeah, we're old, That's Scott. They used to fail people. Yeah, we um, used to. I, be, you got you knew people that got held back and shit. I don't really have anything to add other than just I look forward to part four and finishing this off and and I hope everybody's enjoying and and you know having their brains blown a little bit. Yeah, here. I don't. There I, will be a pop quiz at the end. Is the like it's not a pop quiz if you announce it. Is, is it? the right no, is the right term fucking looking forward to part four like <laughs> looking forward to reading part right. four? Like, yeah. What I'm do I not want to know? Sad. I'm looking yeah. forward to finding out what else I don't want to know. But I mean, I think a lot of the stuff in part four. No, is but be... it's a great book. And if you haven't read it yet, and for some reason you're still listening to us talking about it, <laughs> which is great. And yes. I encourage you to continue doing so. But if you want to read the book, you've got a month. It's like 540 We'll get the book pages. anyway and read it, whether you keep up with us or yeah, not. Yeah, right? but anyways, read the book. It's great. It's great. We actually have some, like we should it should be announced we actually have some people that have picked up the book and are reading along with us so kudos to you guys for being part of this you're our favorites it's the time in the show where i'm going to thank those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for to nicola dinicola to dave bond miller to chris sterwell to the big red machine and to darius Bergard, another author by the way we're gonna every once in a while plug his book so we'll throw his stuff back in the show notes as well um but uh these guys are these people are great and we really appreciate everything you guys do for us um it gives us motivation to keep going um to those of us that have let us know that you've been reading the book wow thank you like it's great and i hope you are learning something it's fun for us um and uh regardless of whether it's a bad history knowing where you came from and how you got to where you are is a good thing and uh more canadians should 
be willing to let this sort of veil be lifted um, because uh, it's important. And there's a, a lot of people around the world that we've affected and we owe it to them to like understand that we haven't, Canada in the world isn't a great story. Anyway, um, until next week, um, we love you guys. Uh, hope you're having a good start to your holiday season. We'll see you in a week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.